when the human mind tries to comprehend the meaning of the universe, it usually gives up. It's, it's impossible for us, with our limited understanding, to know the reason for it all. However, we can perhaps understand that there is an energy, and for convenience we can call that energy God or the Creator. In ancient days, when men were spiritually quickened, they possessed knowledge passed to them by their teachers of a spiritual power or directing influence behind their lives. This found expression for them in the form of the physical sun. They actually worshipped the sun. They knew that the sun not only gave them life and warmth, but also spirit. They realized that behind the physical form, uh, what they, which they saw in the heavens, was a spiritual radiation, uh, the spiritual life force upon which their life depended. Life in every form is created and sustained from the sun. The sun is the heart of the solar system, and from the sun there shines a, a spiritual radiance. What we experience on earth uh, as heat and light is but a reflection of that radiance of the spiritual sun. In the same way, the heart in our own physical body is the life giver and the power which motivates that body. There's an aura or, or radiance around our physical bodies with the heart at its center. In a way, we're miniature solar systems. On a smaller scale, the, the very cells in our body have their nucleus or center radiating energy. And moving to the other end of the scale, we've only to glance at the sky on a clear night to, to get some idea of what a small part of the universe our little galaxy represents. Now, there seems to be some confusion between religion and spirituality. According to the Oxford Dictionary, religion is defined variously as, and I quote, human recognition or of superhuman controlling power and especially of a personal god or gods entitled to obedience and worship. Effect of such recognition on conduct or mental attitude. Particular system of faith and worship. Spirituality is defined as spiritual quality. And spirit is defined as the animating or vital principle, intelligent or immaterial part of man, soul. person viewed as possessing this, especially with reference to, to particular mental or moral qualities. In my view, spirituality is more significant than religion. Religion tends to tie us to dogma, which is defined as an arrogant declaration of opinion. <laughs> On that basis, Religion seems to be the way we go about practicing dogma, whereas uh, spirituality refers to a higher part of our being. The religious faiths that comforted our fathers do not necessarily suffice uh, for the modern generation. It was thought unseemly to ask too many awkward questions in the past, but in this day and age, uh, no such constraints apply. For all that, some of the standard answers to awkward questions on religious matters are less than satisfactory. If one asks the average priest what happens when we die, one may find the answer 
little vague and, in my view, uh, not very comforting. Do we really sit at God's right hand where there are pleasures forevermore? Or do we simply sit on the clouds strumming a harp? Or perhaps spend eternity shoveling coal into some diabolical furnace? For an individual brought up in a particular faith or religion, it's difficult to opt out of that belief. After all, as children, we believe what we're told by our parents and teachers. We listen to what they say and read the books that are presented to us, thus perpetuating those beliefs. As we get older, uh, we may wonder about the validity of some of these things. It depends, to some extent, on how seriously uh, religion is taken in our particular household. There's a tendency for people of like mind to mix together, and thus those of a given persuasion are likely to have that view reinforced rather than questioned. Now, in the West, the predominant religion is Christianity. This is echoed by the Church, and in some cases by the State. Um, other religions are tolerated, uh, but I suspect they're looked upon as inferior. However, for an individual brought up as a, a Buddhist or Muslim or Hindu or whatever, um, the situation would be different. They would presumably consider their belief to be correct and those of the Christian or other religion to be false in some way. So, clearly our beliefs depend upon our upbringing, geographical location and environment. Now, I'm not trying to belittle the belief of any individual. In my view, any religion that gives comfort or helps a person to lead a happy and constructive life is, is good. But I'm just trying to make the point that it's not a bad idea to stand back and look at one's inherited belief with detachment and perhaps consider that the inherited view might not be as well-founded as one might like to think. In that connection, I have to make the point that the leaders of the Christian Church changed the rules in about AD 553, when at the Council of Constantinople, it was agreed by a majority that anybody who supported the mythical doctrine of pre-existence of the soul and who believed in the soul's return to earth after death should henceforth be anathema. Now, anathema is defined as an accursed thing, a curse of God, curse of the church, excommunication, imprecation. Take your choice, but in put in simple terms, it meant that anybody who believed in reincarnation after that date was in for a hard time. In, in this way, the church leaders suppressed the truth uh, which had been taught in the mystery schools throughout the ancient world. Uh, I always point out at this point that mm. the Church of England has rejected the authority of those early councils and is not tied by them in any way. It's only the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Church that is tied by because they went out at the time of the Reformation. Well, that's an interesting uh, addition. <laughs> yes. Well, we maybe come back and have some views on that a little later. I'll, I'll, um, I'll finish this off. Uh, but sh surely there has to be more to life than, than uh, 70 years or so of trial and tribulations, death and departure. Um, anyway, where do people go when they die? Does it depend on religious belief? Uh, since there are countless religions, there must be countless places to go. Well, perhaps. 
What happens if we're not religious? Is there nowhere to go? Is there life after death? What about reincarnation? Is there any proof that we've been here before? Has our health and well-being anything to do with spirituality and the kind of life we lead? The answers to these questions are, are really available to us all if we want to do a bit of research. Hopefully what we talk about this evening may, may provide answers to some of the questions, at least to give some food for thought. I like to think I'm a Christian, but I, I have to mail my colours to the mast and acknowledge all the evidence in favour of the concept of reincarnation. I mean, following that decision in uh, the Council of Constantinople, um, that makes me an accursed thing. <laughs> Uh, it's a pity, but I, I can live with it because I think the decision was a nonsense uh, designed at the time to keep the masses uh, in, in their place and to perpetuate the power of, of the priests. The fact of the matter is that we're really spirit people doing a stint on earth rather than the other way around. The greatest mistake we make is to think of ourselves as separate from God or from the universe into which we've been born. We're all part of the one whole. In my understanding, God, uh, the eternal spirit, is, uh, is both father and mother, and the sun is the Christ light uh, which shines in the hearts of, of everybody. There's no scientific proof of life after death. Um, equally, there's no scientific proof of uh, or scientific way of proving that a person has toothache or many other things for that matter. Um, science puts up a premise uh, and then goes about proving or disproving it. If I claimed I had toothache, uh, this wouldn't amount to scientific proof. Scientifically, I would not have toothache. There's no way of measuring it. Uh, my protestation of being in pain is a private experience and, and subjective. Now, in the 15th century, Copernicus, the Polish astronomer, demonstrated that the planets, including the Earth, revolve around the Sun. Now, prior to that, people had believed that it, the Earth was stationary and the other planets revolved around it. Um, nothing had changed. It was simply a question of seeing things differently. But it was really about 200 years ago when science started putting the boot in <laughs> seriously and created doubts about what we should or shouldn't believe evidence began to be interpreted differently. Science was at odds with religion. Both are rigid systems. Uh, science would have the greatest difficulty in measuring love, beauty, good, evil, feeling, or morality, or toothache. <laughs> religion wasn't meant to be questioned, uh, it was just followed. Science perhaps has a problem in accepting that the mind, uh, not brain, is separate from and superior to the body. Again, we move into a difficult area if uh, scientific <coughs> proof is needed. I've already said that there's no scientific proof of life after death, but what about near-death experiences? Um, these are experiences that many people have had uh, after a severe accident or when they've been seriously ill. or When these near-death experiences occur, the individual is out of his body in a state of peace and completely without pain. After such experiences, individuals speak of a shining world inhabited by beings of light. 
They speak of meeting deceased relatives and friends. Occasionally they're aware of having reviewed their own lives. A barrier or fog can, prog- uh, can block progress beyond uh, a certain point of, point of no return, if you like, and, and the decision is then taken to return to the physical body. Again, there's little scientific approval, but despite the lack of proof of these near-death experiences, there's much evidence if one accepts the universality of such events. Millions of people have had such experiences, uh, irrespective of colour, race or creed. Uh, the near-death experience is, is very real, and indeed greater reality is felt than in the normal world. The experiences are inexplicable in medical terms. There's a small but growing acceptance of empirical experience of a similar kind. For example, individuals are able to describe in great detail from a vantage point outside of their physical body everything that happens to them uh, whilst undergoing an operation or during resuscitation. Uh, Interestingly enough, on the scientific front, uh, recent trials uh, carried out by Dr. Schumacher in in the USA on near-death experiences demonstrate that individuals have uh, a a flat reading of brain activity whilst they're out of their bodies. The difficulty of proving life after death pales into insignificance when it comes to proving reincarnation. Uh, When discussing this topic, I'm often amused by remarks along the lines that no one's come back to tell us about it. But that's really quite wrong because the person making such a statement is really living evidence of reincarnation. In my book, we're all reincarnates, having lived countless times before. Of course, there's no scientific evidence, but uh, as one who's had toothache, I personally don't need that kind of proof. Now, I can't convince anybody of the validity of reincarnation, but I hope what we talk about may give us more food for thought. There's so many books about reincarnation, and I'm sure, I don't need to tell you that here, there's a stack of them behind me. The hypothesis is that we are persuaded to return to Earth again and again in different bodily vehicles, This fact is well supported by cultural tradition, religious doctrine and countless personal experiences or recollections. But all the eloquence and evidence in the world won't make the idea any more palatable to to the individual who doesn't want to believe it. Acceptance of rebirth goes hand in hand with the exploration of our true spiritual natures. Rebirth has always been espoused by the wisest of spiritual and philosophical sages, from Plato to to the Master Jesus. Tribal memory, ancient myth, fable, religious belief and classical wisdom all bear witness to the conviction that repeated incarnations are as essential to spiritual evolution as the succession of years are to physical development. Rebirth has always been seen as the framework uh, of immortality, or the means by which uh, perfect uh, enlightenment can be attained. Over a billion Asiatics, thanks to Hindu and Buddhist teachings, accept that they must undergo round after round of birth and death in the pursuit of knowledge. They aspire to deliverance from the wheel of rebirth by leading lives of selfish selflessness and compassion. The ancient Greeks and Egyptians had a sophisticated 
awareness of the process of reincarnation. The ancient inhabitants of northern Europe were so sure of rebirth that they wept in commiseration at the birth of a child and greeted death with rejoicing. The Druids, with even greater conviction, were supposed to have accepted that if borrowed money uh, couldn't be repaid in this life, uh, the debt could be made good in the next incarnation. Child prodigies uh, provide some evidence for the view that talent is not necessarily developed in one remarkable life, but rather might have its origins in previous existences. Even though Orthodox Christianity, Judaism and Islam <coughs> presently deny reincarnation, members of each of these great schools of religious thought have argued the case for it. Rebirth was widely accepted by many early Christians, uh, notably by Origen, who with the possible exception of Emperor Augustine, was one of the most prominent of the, of the church patrons. As I mentioned before, the Emperor Justinian who put his foot down about reincarnation in, in AD 553 at that Council of Constantinople. That censure was followed by persecution of everybody who refused to think the same way. Resistance was considerable, especially by rebel Christians called the Cathars, and it was not until the 13th century that the Church's campaign of terror and slaughter effectively silenced uh, such thinking in the West. Reincarnation is a, a metaphysical proposition like the concept of heaven and hell and, and can't be measured scientifically or judged by our earthly limitations. I think proof has to give way to perception and we have to know it really from, from within. It's Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's difficult for people to understand that Earth is not our true home. It's simply a place we visit in order to be educated. In the way that we travel to foreign parts in order to broaden our experience or to render service in some way, our trip to Earth or incarnation in a physical body is but an educational visit. We're only partially here on Earth. We think we're here because we confuse our physical bodies with our true selves. That part of us here on earth is only an infinitesimal part of our whole being. When we incarnate or visit it, to take on that heavy physical overcoat, it's hard to imagine that this is not our whole being. All matter is vibration. Water uh, is a liquid, we can hold it in a glass in front of us and look at it. <laughs> we can see it, touch it, and sometimes we can even smell it. If heat is applied to that water, its vibration is speeded up and it turns into steam. By cooling water, its vibration can be slowed down and it turns into solid ice. But ice, steam and water all consist of the same components. But as the vibrations speeded up or slowed down, the, the components assume a different state. The rate of vibration of the molecules of hydrogen oxide, which comprise water, is the sole differentiating, differentiating factor. Ice, the solid, water, the liquid, and steam, the vapor, are all independent of one another at the physical level, and yet they are still one and the same thing. They're differentiated by their rate of molecular vibration. 
the whole of the universe is based on the principle that, that everything is a vibration. Uh, incidentally, the Master Jesus said that everything is light, and light is, of course, a vibration. Light is a rate of molecular vibration which, in its highest form, we can't perceive. Whilst we're incarnate here on earth, we rely on the five senses of feeling, touch, sight, hearing and taste, but these are really quite restricted. Animals and birds and various other sentient beings have more acute senses of seeing, hearing, touch and so on. We can't see x-rays, but we know they exist because we're able to see the evidence on x-ray pictures. We can't feel them, touch them, hear them or smell them, but we don't deny their existence because of this. It's the difference in the speed of vibration that distinguishes one physical state from another. What we think of as a solid block of metal is actually a construction of innumerable points of force interlocking with the others. Molecules, atoms, molecular and atomic bonds, crystalline structures and so on. Obviously it's convenient to think of items as being solid for everyday purposes, but when we leave our physical body behind us, or rather when we leave the physical world behind us, along with our physical body, to live in the non-physical world beyond, we enter a world of mind and emotions, a world of the forces of thought. Thought is energy. It's a world constructed from the material of thought with the purpose of thought behind it. If you can imagine for a moment a dream, it may help to illustrate the point. And when we experience a dream, it's completely real to us at the time, but it's simply a thought. I know there's more to dreams than that, but the point I'm making is that we, we don't actually, uh, we don't leave our bed, but we, we, we see all kinds of things which seem totally real to us. We have to understand that humans are not simply a physical body. The spirit living on earth as a human being obviously has a physical body, but in addition to this has three subtle bodies around the physical body, but of a finer vibration is the electrical or etheric body, uh, which is used to energize the physical. We're told that it looks like small golden gleaming threads, but take away the etheric body and the physical body dies. Surrounding the etheric body and vibrating at a finer rate is the astral body and around that and pervading the physical, etheric and astral bodies is the mental body vibrating at an even higher rate. At the hub of the entire composite is the soul. That, this is a very complicated area and I, I don't really plan to go, go into it in any great detail tonight but suffice to say that we're not just a physical lump um, but we have uh, less obvious dimensions which are really the support vehicles when we leave our, our physical body. The primary fact of historical existence is that all things, both living and inanimate, come into being and later vanish. This is true on every scale. Uh, in the galactic system, or rather the galactic system itself has not always existed. It was born billions of years ago and at some point in the future it will die. During the time our universe has been in existence it's gradually produced the sun, the earth and an environment capable of supporting human life as we know it or life in general as we know it. 
he gave birth to the human race a relatively short time ago a few million years at the most during that time billions of individual humans have lived and died we have collectively evolved a civilization capable of landing man on the moon or killing thousands of people at a stroke what governs this process of birth and death of growth and development scientists tend to rely on the various theories of evolution in their search uh, for these answers but a scientific approach has limitations the main problem is that scientific theories of evolution deal only with the physical dimension which is only one aspect of a much more complicated reality when and if these theories are ever proven they're inherently incapable of explaining anything beyond the facts of physical development what of the much larger question of the evolution of the human mind and the human spirit for answers to, to for this we have to look uh, to mystics rather than scientists humans lie steal and betray one another in fact they do everything that the ten commandments forbid why is this the normal pattern when man was given material form he was also given free will uh, um, and some chose to do, good, to do good and others <laughs> didn't this is the way that humans learn and grow we reap as we sow uh, cause and effect the eastern term for, for that is karma our experiences on earth make this clear but it seems to take most of us a long time to appreciate the fact it's hard to acknowledge that we've only got ourselves to blame for our experiences karma is that which individuals have set in motion for themselves from lifetime to lifetime by their motivations attitudes and behavior acceptance of karma dismisses the idea that humans are mere pawns in a cosmic uh, chess game to accept karma is to acknowledge that the world is an arena of natural justice there can be no unfairness, inequality and misfortune if conditions arise as a direct result of our own past conduct karma links uh, self-responsibility to the law of cause and effect one's actions from life to life give shape and substance to personal continuity and personal destiny Buddha put it rather well, uh, if uh, somewhat enigmatically uh, when he said if you want to know the past look at your present life if you want to know the future look to your present traditionally defined karma is a system of retributive justice that perpetuates uh, rebirth and determines the form and setting for each succeeding incarnation the ancients taught that karma is discharged according to an eye for an eye philosophy which maintains that sooner or later people will experience for themselves precisely the joys and sorrows they've created for others uh, however it doesn't have to work out exactly that way in my understanding because we have the opportunity to transmute the karmic consequences of our earlier activity by serving our fellow men when we help another we, we're really helping ourselves how many times do we see events in our daily lives which are apparently inexplicable an innocent person suffers and a, a rogue escapes punishment a child dies and a dictator lives 
when we understand karma, we realize that we can judge no individual. It seems reasonable to expect good actions in a life to produce agreeable consequences. But when this doesn't happen, we have to look deeper and to discover the reason for this apparent uh, discrepancy. Our very being is a continuous phenomenon ruled by the laws of cause and effect, or karma. According to one esoteric source, human experiences repeated through excessive, uh, successive incarnations are really for the purpose of impressing on the soul that the power which flows from God, source of all life, is unfailing. And that power which flows from the source of all life is the power of good. It's called love, or light, and its manifestation in human life is the sustaining power of that life. The world's a miraculous place. Uh, one is continually struck by the fact that everything arises out of nothingness. Every existence, even an existence that appears bad or evil, needs to be treasured. In the journey of waves across the ocean, we see a continual change between highness and lowness. We don't call the high good and the low bad, but recognize that if the low places did not exist, as a base, the high places couldn't exist either. The summit of a mountain uh, could not exist without the base. The whole is composed of its parts. We would not understand joy if we didn't know sorrow. And when one comes to understand karma for what it is, one realizes the inherent interconnectedness of, of all beings. Every action causes a reaction both positive and negative circumstances are caused by karma. Our personalities are the result of cumulative karma. We are what we've experienced and how we deal with what we've learned. Momentum is essential to personal evolution. Without momentum there would be no learning, there would be nothing to propel the soul through the many experiences that arise in the course of its journeying from incarnation to incarnation. While uh, existing in this world, we can sim simultaneously experience the existence of a higher reality. The karma and reincarnation of any individual existence functions within the structure of the, for that multi-dimensional reality. As people, or human beings, we can exist simultaneously in the three dimensions of being, the, the physical, the astral, and the mental that uh, I mentioned before. Over the course of time, our bodies and souls incarnate into and out of these planes through a process we call being born and dying. Reincarnation is a natural consequence of karma. We have to see life as an eternal process. Our, our biggest mistake is thinking that the real life is the physical world we're experiencing now. The continuing stream of life is really on the other side, which is to say where we go when we die. This is punctuated by episodes of, of existence in many earth lives where we learn from our experiences. In the life between earth lives, called the bardo by some, it's not necessary to extend oneself or make any great effort. One can live an infinitely easy life only too readily. The periods we have on earth, uh, which are far from easy for most people, are to give us uh, the difficult experiences 
we need to balance that equation. Now, many of you don't believe that our lives are predestined. In fact, I believe they are, or pretty much so. There is a plan for our lives. Our destiny is a result of our own plan for this life, decided before incarnation and of our own free will. Nonetheless, this plan can be influenced by someone else's plan for our life and, of course, the free will of others. We seem to be able to manoeuvre to some extent within the broad plan by our reactions to the events around us. By the same token, someone else may change the plan for us by utilising their free will to react in a particular way. If someone else changes the plan for us, though, they will incur a karmic liability on our behalf. Whether or not we are conscious of these things is another matter. But um, when we plan our lives, uh, events such as floods, hurricanes, earthquakes and so on are known to be possibilities by the higher mind or intuition long before they happen and, and these are taken into account. During sleep our souls can travel to ethereal planes whilst maintaining contact with our mortal bodies by a thin uh, luminous uh, thread or silver thread. Uh, the Bible calls it the silver cord. It anchors the soul to the body until the need for sleep has been satisfied. When death comes, the soul detaches itself from the body and the silver cord is severed completely. That's the beginning and the end of the mechanics of death. But no soul can ever pass over into those subtle worlds unless it has given its consent. This doesn't mean conscious consent, because the conscious mind is only a minor extension of the soul. The conscious mind may assume that death is approaching, but it's the soul itself that must give its consent before the process can take place. I'm told the actual act of dying is as simple as dozing off to sleep after lunch. <laughs> We're told that it's much more dangerous and unpleasant to be born in the earthly world than it is to leave it. Uh, being born is a painful, risky business. Nobody contemplates it with any degree of pleasure. And yet many people on earth fear death. Death is a great adventure and uh, we should really welcome our release from earthly bondage. The more dominant aspects of human life are those of the physical and material. Another aspect lies very deep in our subconscious until it's quickened and brought out into the conscious mind. This aspect is the spiritual one, the life of the innermost. For many, material life has the greater claim on their attention. In a sense, that's right, because it's the only, only through uh, the physical life that the soul garners the experiences by which it grows towards God. But this is not the whole truth. Uh, all aspects have to be recognized, attuned and, and balanced. Nonetheless, the first and fundamental aspiration of man should be towards spirit. It's no use thinking that man's spiritual life can wait. The, the progress and happiness of mankind depends on man's understanding of this attunement and the balance between matter and spirit. Until the human soul on, the earth, uh, on this earth learns to recognize the spiritual life as the supreme light and purpose of its being, it won't find much joy. 
what's the purpose of life? It's an old question. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, according to one spiritual school of wisdom, the hen came first. The thinking is that the hen came first because the parent of all, the divine intelligence, when creating all things, created them perfectly. The egg results from life and development in the hen as a seed results from the life process of the flower. If we think of creation as a manifestation of a thought sent forth from the mind of God, um, in the mind of God an idea was conceived of a perfect world. Um, some consider the story uh, as portrayed in Genesis of the creation and the birth of Adam into flesh a childish uh, fable. Yet from a spiritual point of view there are many seeds of truth in the old story. But what purpose does life serve? the outer mind questions um, and the inner mind might reply an ever enfolding revelation of the beauty of God and of the meaning of love wisdom and joy but what about sickness, suffering and sorrow of what use is all this talk of eternity and to mortals who suffer and exist only by the sweat of their brow what does this mean to the average man? We have to understand, I think, that the trials and suffering we endure is the road that leads us to um, inner understanding. When we're able to comprehend this, we experience an all-pervading love and joy. Suffering is the, the means of forcing the growth of the seed. Before sending us forth, the divine mind conceived us not as we are now uh, or as we were ages ago, but as we will become when we've uh, grown from the soil and turned our faces away from the shadows and into the, into the light. I've said before that the greatest mistake we can make is to think of ourselves as separate from God or from the universe into which we've been born. We're all part of the one whole Earth's humanity has always looked to the sun. Every race left on record its worship of the sun. The ancients knew the physical life. Uh, the ancients knew that the source of all life was the sun. And even beyond the physical life, they knew that the sun was a spiritual manifestation of the universal principle from which all life came. That first principle is love, and love is light where there is love, there is light. There's radiance. Where there's no love, there's darkness and heaviness. The brothers of the light are the brothers of the sun, and the brothers of the sun are the brothers of love. All brothers of this light work together as one great master soul. This is so even though each individual is separate, just as grains of sand are separate, and yet together they form the seashore, or as drops of water make an ocean. Can men and women ever understand that God intends them to be happy, that God doesn't punish them, but rather they inflict their own punishment on themselves? People bring forward arguments galore in order to, not to deny that simple eternal truth. We don't like to be told that we are our own enemy and that we bring troubles to ourselves. Jesus told us how to live. 
it's up there, I see. <laughs> Love one another. Uh, we could be forgiven for thinking, how can we ever learn to love so-and-so, or how can we ever love people who seem so naturally antagonistic uh, to us, or people who commit terrible crimes. I think we first have to find peace in our own hearts, because this is the only way to establish peace, goodwill and brotherhood on the earth. We have to be patient, these uh, things are coming. But we first have to examine our daily habits of thought, even our, or especially any antagonistic or critical thoughts, uh, and even spoken criticism. The one who would become a disciple must start on himself with, with love in the heart. There's no point looking back with regret because it's a waste of time. We have to do our best let the inner voice speak and uh, whatever the circumstances uh, in which we're placed we have to be careful what we say and always speak the truth it's worth remembering what appears to be evil is a tester of the human spirit and uh, can quicken the growth of the light within the light which is love love is the most profound secret of the universe it's the beginning of life indeed it's life itself its seed lies within every soul, although many, many incarnations may need to pass before the majority of souls uh, discover the light which lies within themselves. This light, or love, by the way, must extend to all God's creatures. Um, I wonder how the human family can expect anything but a reaction of pain and suffering for itself when uh, it is cruel to brother animal. Cruelty is an appalling sin. Cruelty in action, thought or speech. Tame animals have to depend on men and women. They give us their faith and look to us for food and <coughs> protection and companionship. The pain is sometimes inflicted on them quite thoughtlessly and selfishly and carelessly. We have to try to become more aware of the life force of God in the stones, in the trees, in the water, in the air. The blessing of peace and true brotherhood will only come to us as we learn to treat not only God's creatures but the earth itself kindly and with imagination and respect. We should feel love, tenderness and compassion for, for all. All we have to do is put into effect those words love one another. Those three words if truly understood and lived would set the world aflame with power and happiness and plenty. All life must be respected for all is of God. I particularly liked your the, the way you overcome that for one thing. Um, that, there was, uh, that, that we can, as it were, expiate this by service to others. We don't actually mm. just have to sit and await exactly the same thing happening. Yes. Free will is always a problem that it's very hard to understand sometimes why this, you know, why we have free will to some extent, and yet our lives are predestined in, in other ways. But I've tried to explain there. That could be reconciled by the soul volunteering before the, for mm. the broad sweep of what's going to happen in the next life, couldn't it? And then we yes, have, well, I think in my have another free will there. Yes. And yet, when we're born and mm. we begin to grow up and we begin to awaken to our mm. purpose, then 
It may seem like predestination, but it's just that we are committed mm. to our predestination. In that book, Life Between Lies, um, that's rather interesting if you haven't read it. Um, I've forgotten the author now. Which but one? Life Between Lies. Oh, um, uh, yeah, I know the one you mean, but I can't find it. It's by a couple of um, people, it's by a, cor- uh, a journalist and writing up the works of, of uh, a doctor, I can't remember his name, but there they talk about, you know, when you decide on your next life. I think the real free will is there, having, you then you having decided what you're going to do once you incarnate, then you forget all about that and you're stuck with whatever you've chosen. But the interesting thing is how other people can humbug you and influence your life and that obviously can change things slightly or how you react to certain events but I think the broad picture is there Yeah, some people mm. talk about people dropping out from, mm. their, from their commitment mm. either because they don't mm. have a stamina or because other things interfere or because they yeah. forget about it amidst all the chaos and mm. well. Yes, yeah, so I think we can also I mean, we can all throw ourselves under a bus if we want to but uh, I think having done that you would wind up back there <laughs> thinking, oh, you know, what a pity, now I've got to do it all again and learn those particular lessons, so you'll be around again pretty smartly. But who knows? I, I, well, I, I imagine lots of people believe it, but the, the book I mentioned, Life Between Life, it, they arrive at that through, through regression. One of the author, Joe, Fisher's one of Joe Fisher was the correspondent, yeah. and, or the journalist, and um, I can't think of the other one for the moment, but it, this doctor regressed various patients of his and they, I think in that book they cover about eight or ten of those patients and he got into the situation almost by accident he was saying go back to your previous life rather than previous incarnation and the, the life was the life between lives where they were deciding what they should do it's also covered to some extent in the book Truth is Veiled which is about the death of a, a young man in an accident at about age 23 who was later able to communicate with his father and he explains you know, some of that there, there are many books on the subject another one is On the Death of My Son by Jasper Swain if you've ever read that it's a brilliant book you go a fairly good account in the Myers communications through Geraldine Cummins which date from the 30s originally uh, The Road to Immortality and Beyond Personality yes but there are many, the, the, the awakening letters. Oh, there, there, are, very, there are many. Uh, um, I always recommend Paul Beard's book, Living On, The Unhidden Man. Anyone who um, has been regressed or seen some soothsayer or who, who has an inkling of what's happened previously will, will probably tell them that you know their husbands or wives were related to them in some other way or linked with them in previous lives and I think we're not meant to know most of the time but when you are meant to know then that's then you will know (laughs) I think most of us really couldn't cope with all the things we've done and all the appalling lives we've led and so you know we're spared that knowledge until we're strong enough to, to cope with it life is very hard I mean who has an easy life I don't know anyone who has an easy life You you see people from a distance and you and you think well that their lot is easy because they're rich or beautiful or they've got this and that but when you look closely or if you hear what their lives are really like you realise that in their way they're just as hard as everybody else.
Yes, when, when all you ever wanted isn't enough. That's mm. the title of a book by Harold Kushner. Yes. Uh, who wrote the first book when bad things happened to good people about people who were obviously unfortunate mm. and then he discovered that people who seemed to be very well off and very settled and nice families and everything still didn't seem to be happy and so for them he wrote this second book when all you ever wanted is enough because they have to find a spiritual purpose before they're mm. we do judge ourselves very harshly for the most part 